Amen. May that be our prayer. All we have is Christ. Uh, we sing that with desperation, don't we? Yet at the same time, we sing that with, with hope and with joy. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. It's a new series that we're beginning today. Um, we're starting with chapter 1. I feel, feel it's a good place to start. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What I would like to do is read uh, the whole first chapter and pray and then just simply ask God to help us. Sound good? So follow along in your Bible as, as I read. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, FYI. Uh, so it might be different from what you have. It might be the same. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Follow along as I read. Paul. That means it's from Paul, all right? Early first century letters, they're uh, sincerely Paul. That was done at the beginning, okay? Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus our, and our brother, Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the, into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made, the fool, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your own calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom of God, from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that... As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Father, we ask that as we begin this new study, this new series in 1 Corinthians, that you speak to us. Uh, These are your very words. This is your revelation that you have in your uh, sovereignty and in your wisdom given to us through the hand of your servant, the Apostle Paul, preserved for us by the church so we can have it today, so we can read it today for this moment, so we may be uh, impacted by these words, so that we may be drawn into a deeper sense of humanity, into a bigger understanding of who you are and what you're doing in this world, and so that we may see Christ, and so that we may boast in Christ, and so that we may see uh, not ourselves and our flesh and our power and our wisdom, but that we may have only one uh, thing that is common among us, and that is Christ. God, uh, bring us together this morning as a church. Unite us in this text. Help us as we study this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to focus your attention this morning on two verses. Verse 10 and verse 11, look at it. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there, there be, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. Everybody say quarreling. That's a good word to add to your vocabula- vocabulary quarreling. It's another word for fighting. There's fighting among you. There is nothing as opposed to the union that a church has, that we have in Christ. Nothing stands as opposed to that union as, say, a church fight. Yet, there is nothing more common to the history of church as, say, a church fight. In the, uh, in, in the 1800s, I, uh, there was a church. I, I heard this story. Church in the 1800s uh, had a church fight when two deacons began to argue about whether or not they should place a peg in the back wall on which to hang their hats. Sides were taken. Things got heated. And then finally... When that first deacon took the peg and he nailed it into the back wall, the church split. 
church fights. Whether a church is fighting over pegs in walls, or whether they're fighting over music styles, or whether they're fighting over peripheral theological debates, or whether they're fighting over personalities, or whether they're fighting over uh, who stole the flannel graph, or whatever the fight may be. Church fights are common to church history. It's sort of like what happens when you get a bunch of broken human beings together in one room. People who have feelings that get hurt, people who have pride that get, get in, gets in the way. A church that is fighting, you could say, is a typical church. All right, so we want to be a typical church. Let's put the boxing gloves on. on. By the way, I'm picking up boxing in 2014. Just a little side note there <laughs> to go along with our series. And let's start fighting, okay? Typical church equals fighting. Now, that doesn't mean that that is a desirable church, okay? Everybody agree? Typical? Sure, fine. Desirable? Not necessarily. This is why this letter was from Chloe was written. So let me give you a little brief background into 1 Corinthians here since we're starting a new series. It seems that Paul received two letters from this church. Now, this is the most notorious church in the New Testament. They are like the baddest, the church in Corinth. They wrote two, two letters came from Corinth. One was from the church as a whole, it seems, asking specific questions on how to do worship, how to do communion, uh, who should take communion, who should not take communion, whether or not we should wear head coverings, etc. We're going to get into all that. That's the second half of the book. The first half is dealing with, the, with another letter that Paul received from the church, specifically from a, a, a person and, and her people named Chloe. So Chloe was probably a member of the church, and she, like you, might find a fighting church to be an undesirable church. And so Chloe's people wrote Paul a separate letter on their own saying, look, there are massive issues and problems in our church. There are church fights that are happening. There are divisions. In addition, there are people who are getting drunk all of the time. There are adulterers. There are sexually promiscuous people. There are people that are shopping at the pagan meat markets and flaunting it in front of others. There are self-promoters. There are proud people. As I said, Corinthians is known today as sort of the notorious church. They are the baddest of all churches, okay? Now, before we start sort of bashing the church in Corinth and looking down on them because we've got it so much better and all together, let's humble ourselves for just a moment and let's take a step back and let's look at Corinth where the church came out of. So the city of Corinth, all right? So if you'll permit me. Corinth was near Athens, which means that Corinth had a lot of intellectual elitism. So pride, family pride, knowledge, wisdom, big deal in Corinth. Now, in addition to that, Corinth had vices. Vices were all over the place. Years before this was written, meaning it was already ingrained into the culture of Corinth by the time this church developed, a couple hundred years of culture here, for years Corinth was known as the city of commercialized love. It is supposed, I don't know if this is true, but it's supposed that prostitution was invented by the Corinthians. The Corinthian girl was a name, term synonymous with prostitute. 
There was a temple in Corinth during Paul's day as this letter was written called the Temple of Aphrodite. Does anybody know who Aphrodite was the goddess of? The goddess of love. At the Temple of Aphrodite, it's there's evidence that there were a thousand priestesses that in the name of their religion would come to work every day as prostitutes. And men would come from all over the city and have relations with these thousand priestesses as part of their religion. Now, that is the city in which this church exists. That is the city in which these people are coming from, the darkness in which people are coming out of. Are, we, are you with me here? Which means this, <clears throat> what should be shocking to you as we study this letter is not that there are problems in the church of, at Corinth. What should be shocking to you is that there is a church in Corinth at all. Now, Paul shared these same feelings, which is why Paul, as he opens this, isn't mad at them. Paul's not slamming them. Paul's not saying you are terrible, you're not Christians, uh, you're, you're, you're just making a mockery. Paul actually loves this church. And we sense that as soon as the letter begins. Like, I want you to know something. I love you, and I am thankful for you. And verse 2, let me, let me just show you. Verse 2, look at it. It says he greets them as those who are sanctified in the gospel. That's a word, sanctified means made holy. So before he gets into all of the junk, he's like, let me remind you, you are sanctified. You are made holy because of the good news. Not because of what you've done, but because of the good news, the gospel. Verse 4, he says, I I thank, I give thanks to my God always for you because of God's grace. Paul has feelings and affections for this church. Yes, there are problems, and we're going to address those problems, but it's as if he's saying, first, let me remind you that you are people who are Christians, who believe the good news of Jesus. You believe in the gospel, and I am glad that you exist in Corinth. I am glad for your witness there. I am glad for your your earnest uh, desire to be together as a church, to remain faithful, to participate in the life and the worship of the church. And then he goes even deeper. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, he says, uh, he reminds him of Jesus Christ, who will sustain you until the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he's saying, look, before we get into the stuff, before we get into the problems, let me remind you that you can right now stand before God guiltless. Before we start talking about divisions and church fights and, and uh uh, people who are sexually promiscuous and, and grace uh, that, is, that is not grace, counterfeit grace. I mean, all of these issues. Before we get into that, let me remind you that you can right now stand before God guiltless. Not only that, he says that Christ, this Christ in which you have believed and found your hope in, this Christ will sustain you guiltless. Meaning every day. Until the rest of your life, you will be sustained guiltless before God until that day of judgment. Man, if we could have this kind of love for those who, who, uh, in the church that we have problems with, those who we don't like, those whose personalities annoy us, those who maybe believe some things a little differently than we do, if we could have this kind of love, if we could begin... Uh, our, our, our conversations 
with them with this kind of assurance in the gospel. Now, that's, that's Paul's introduction. Then, then he does jump right into the problems, okay? So he reminds them of these huge things, like this is truth. We are brothers. You are guiltless before God. Now, let's talk about church fights. So there in verse 10, he says, so now I, I appeal to you. I appeal to you, brothers. There are these church fights that are happening. If a church is filled with human beings, if you can feel your heartbeat, if you have warm blood flowing through your veins, if you have feelings that can get hurt, if you have pride that can get in the way, if you have agendas and ideas, if you have thoughts, if you have uh, preferences, if you have convictions, then church fights are just simply bound to happen. The church does not bar any human being from their midst who is going to create a church fight. All right? The church is a place where we come together as broken people under the gospel and we realize one thing. Church fights might happen because we are all broken human beings. Now, the question is this. In Corinth, why was church fights, why were, why were they happening? What was the cause of the church fights. Paul immediately jumps into it. He says, I appeal to you. I hear that there's divisions among you. Look what he says in verse, 11, verse 10. He says, that, uh, I, I appeal to you that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So the first cause of the church fights here in Corinth is that they didn't have the same mind. So they weren't, they weren't of one mind. They all had their own ideas, their own interpretations of the scriptures, their own ideas of what were the main things that we should all be believing. There was no unity among them. Now, if you will allow me a little detour, can I take a little detour here and and talk about something that I think is just ironic in the church today? It's popular today to say something like this, creeds divide. Confessions divide. Doctrine divides. It's popular to th- say something like this. We need to, re- to, to, to sort of get beyond uh, creeds and doctrine and confessions and just simply agree to disagree and hold nothing really mentally in common. Now, the irony is this. What seems to be, to make sense, what seems, yeah, doctrine, doctrine divides, yeah, confessions divide, creeds divide. It seems to be true. What's happening in Corinth is the opposite. What's happening in Corinth is nobody knows what to agree on. Nobody, I mean, so, so this person has this interpretation of the Scriptures, this person has this interpretation of the Scriptures, and there's no unity. They're not of one mind. So what are the things that we are to be agreeing on? What are uh, the divisions that we are to not permit in the church? So as a result, church history has given us what we call creeds. So like we read one this morning, the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed is another one. Uh, The Reformers gave us confessions such as the Heidelberg or the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession. Today in our church, we have our own confessional statement. We call it the Statement of Basic Belief, which basically is this. It's it's simply this. Over, Over the years, it's the church trying to be faithful to this. It's the church trying to say there are some things that we have to be 
agree on. There are some things that we have to have one mind on. There are some divisions that we must not permit. So what was causing divisions now and fights in the church was not the fact that they had, say, a creedal statement. The fact, or what was causing divisions was the fact that they had no agreement on anything. It was like this individualism, this man-centered individualism. But it goes deeper than that. Look at verse 11. He says, uh, verse 12, he says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? So an even deeper problem causing fights in the church in Corinth is man-centered personality cults. What seems to have been happening was this. You would get baptized by, say, Apollos, and then you are now part of Apollos' tribe. Like, you're part of his sect. I follow Apollos. This guy was baptized by Cephas, and so he follows Cephas. And the people who were baptized by Cephas, they don't really like the people that were baptized by Apollos because they see things a little differently or they have a different name attached to them. And then you've got sort of that, uh, that, that, that uh, uh, I'm just going to say, the annoying type who says, oh, I don't follow Apollos, I don't follow Cephas, I, don't follow, I just follow Jesus. He addresses them as well. You, you, do you guys know the type that I'm talking about? Like you're in a conversation and somebody says, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I really like Martin Luther. Then this person says, I really like John Calvin. And then the third person says, I just follow Jesus. <laughs> Paul's like, please. Some say I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. And then this guy says, I follow Christ. Come on. Paul's saying, you're completely missing it. Because even that statement is suggesting that Christ is divided. That Christ is one of many ways or sects. That's suggesting that Martin Luther or John Calvin were not in Christ. That's suggesting that Paul or Cephas or Apollos were not in Christ. Is Christ divided? And then Paul, in his frustration, says, you know what, I'm just thankful that I hardly baptized any of you guys. And then he mentions a few, like, oh, wait, I did baptize someone, so I forgot about that. But other than that, like, I'm just thankful I didn't baptize any other. I might have, I don't remember. At least, not to my memory, did I baptize anyone else. Because y'all are just crazy. Paul then asks a good question. He says, did Paul die for you? Is Paul your Savior? Is Apollos your Savior? Did Cephas shed his blood on the cross for the remission of your sins? Paul's asking a good question here. And he's pointing something out that is the cause of the church fights. And that is this. It is the elevation of man and the removal of Christ. The decline of Christ and the increase of man. Do you see what causes church fights? Now, um, this is what I want to do. So Paul, this is Paul's sort of kind of introduction really. 
and uh, he brings up this issue of church fights. Then what he does, if you look at your Bibles, verses 18 through 31, he then dives into two uh, doctrinal themes. He brings up this issue of church fights, and then he spends a lot of expensive parchment on two doctrinal themes. Now, the first time I read this chapter, I was scratching my head, and this is the question I was asking. Why is it that Paul brings up church fights and then dives into doctrine? Why is it that he brings up church fights and then dives into these two themes? Or another way to ask that question that I was asking, how is it that these two themes that he now wrestles with, how is it that they together, when understood, obliterate church fighting? So that is where we're going to go today, and my hope is this. I want to look at these two themes. As a matter of fact, I want to kind of imagine, imagine we have a comb. Everybody pretend you have a comb, and you're combing through the rest of this chapter, and when you get through, you kind of pull out, and you look at the, the, whatever is on the comb, all right? What we find, we're going to comb through it one time. We're going to pull out the comb, and what we're going to see is the foolishness and weakness of man, all right? So that's the first doctrine that he deals with. Then we're going to run the comb through a second time. When we pull it out, we're going to see the, the wisdom and the power of God. That is the second doctrine that he deals with. Then I want to try to, at the end, take these two doctrines, the foolishness, the weakness of man, the wisdom and the power of God, and say, how do these two themes, these two doctrines, when rightly understood, how do they become for us the remedy for every church fight? All right? So let's begin. We're going to comb through the first time. Our first comb through it focuses on the foolishness and weakness of man. Now, before we do it, Corinth was a city, like I said, that took pride in her wisdom and in her intellect Corinth was a city with many noble families. It was a city with many educated philosophers, a city with rich merchants. They took a lot of pride in their wisdom. Paul is asking this question if you look at verse 20. Paul is saying, where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? What Paul is saying there is this. In all of history, as far as we can remember, of God, the history of God, turning hearts to him. The broken, hard heart of a man being turned to a righteous and holy God. In all of the history of hearts being turned to God, where are the wise people? Where, are, where, where, is, the, where is the wise man who through his intellect can turn a heart? That's what Paul's saying. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age who through their debates and through their logic and through their, 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 their mental uh, abilities can sort of wrangle the dark heart of a man and turn him to God? Paul's saying it doesn't exist. He's saying this, no heart has ever been turned to God because of human wisdom. As we look at it, verse, look at verse 18. He says, the word of the cross, like this message that is central that, that we preach, the word of the cross, he says, is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. Verse 20, he says, where are the wise? Where are the wisdom of the world? 
what, what, what uh, man has used his intellect and his wisdom to turn a cold human heart. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world, he says. In verse 21, he says that there is a folly or a foolishness to what we preach. Do you notice the repetition here? Paul is making a point. His point is this. He's like, look guys, as you're coming together and you're disputing these matters and you're, you, have, you have your little church fights, do you realize that the message that we're preaching is foolishness to the outside world? Do you realize that the very thing at the center of us, the message of Christ and the cross, like if, if we go out there, it just sounds foolish? Then he goes on, verses 22 and 23, he says that the Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek, seek wisdom. The cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the wisdom. This is what he's saying. He's saying, look, if the Jews who are seeking a sign, um, a, a bloodied Messiah hanging on a cross, not a good sign. So for the Jews who are seeking a sign, like they're not finding it in the bloodied Messiah hanging on a cross. And then he looks over at the Greeks, the Greeks who are seeking wisdom, seeking logic. Uh, um, the, the message, put your hope in a guy that Rome killed, sounds foolish. The Jews don't find their sign. The Greeks don't find their wisdom according to worldly standards. And then, not only is our message foolish, but he says, he, he points right at the Corinthians themselves. Look at verse 26. He says, for consider your own calling, brothers. So, sort of, so I want you to track with this. Your, the, the very message which unifies us, absolute foolishness. All right? Do you guys understand that? We are absolutely foolish to believe it. Then he says, and look at yourselves. Verse 26, he says, you consider your own calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of noble birth. Now what is Paul saying here? He's saying two things. First, he's saying this. He's saying you are entering into the church. You're coming together as a body and you're having your bickering and your debates and you don't like each other and you're forgetting that the very message you preach is just foolishness to anyone else. What he means is this. You're coming in with your flesh and with your pride and with your ideas and your intellect like I think a peg would look really good on that back wall. I think it would be nice if we could hang hats. I think that's foolish. I don't think we need a peg. You're, you're coming in with these ideas and these preferences and you're making them the center point. And what you're doing in the process, he's saying, is you are removing from that center point Christ himself. You see, churches uh, remove the, 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 the very power that they have in Christ when they begin to lift themselves up and partake in church fights. Let me explain it this way. 
Um, imagine a, and th- these aren't church fight examples, but just generally speaking, imagine a socially oriented church, loves their neighbor, good thing. They begin a housing program. And over some years, something subtly changes, and the housing program now becomes the center point of the church. You ask nine out of ten people in the church why they exist, the answer is, is to provide housing for those in transition. Or imagine a church that is a, 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 a conservative church. And they focus on preserving certain traditions and musical styles. And that becomes the center point of the church. Or imagine a liturgical church that embraces beauty. And over some time, beauty becomes the center point of the church. Do you see what happens We can look across America and we can see what happens. This is what happens. The church shoots themselves in the foot by removing their only source of power. By removing that from the centerpiece and placing something else as the centerpiece. By saying that the message of Christ, the message of God in this world dying for us in our place for the forgiveness of our sins is no longer the center point of the church and something else is there. What happens is the people say there's nothing there. You're foolish. You're fools. You have no power. You've removed yourself from any sense of power. The second thing Paul's saying is this. So first he's saying that removing Christ is removing the only thing that you have. Secondly, he's saying this. He's saying God chose you. The reason you were chosen to be part of God's church is not because you had such a great gift set to offer his kingdom. It's not like God sort of scanned across humanity and he said, man, I could really use that person because they, they've, got this, they've got this swagger about them and they've got this personality that would be dynamic in my kingdom. So I'm going I'm to bring them, I'm going to save them bring him into the church. He's saying, look, God didn't call you. God didn't use you. Consider your own calling. It wasn't because of your amazing gift set. It wasn't because you had uh, talents or abilities. God called you, he's saying, because you had weaknesses. And through your weaknesses, his power would be seen and known and made great. God called you because you had a lack of wisdom in some areas, and your lack of wisdom would really showcase his wisdom when he begins to speak through you. You see, the first doctrine that Paul is laying out here before us is simply this, that without Christ, we are just simply fools. I mean, sure, we can learn a lot, we can study a lot, we can do a lot, but at the end of the day, without Christ, we are nothing but Fools, the first step in coming to Christ is to recognize that we are fools. That the smartest individual, the wisest philosopher, the strongest, the strongest personality is a mere fool in need of a savior. 
and we fall before him as fools, and fools rush into the church and find a home here. Without Christ, we are absolutely foolish. All right, that's doctrine number one. We're going to comb through it again. Look at doctrine number two. Look at verse 18. He says, The word of the Christ, folly to those who are perishing, but, he says, to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, what kind of power? Verse 21. Through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach, it is the power to save those who believe. So the power that Christ brings a foolish church is, and a, and a, and a message that sounds foolish, is the power to save a soul from hell. Verse 24. To Jews... To Greeks who are looking for signs and for wisdom, it's foolishness, it's stumbling block. But to those who are called, for both Jews and Greeks, it is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. The so-called, verse 25, foolishness of God is wiser than man. The so-called weakness of God is stronger than man. So what he's saying here is this. He's saying that the power of the cross is this. It is the power of God to save a soul. You see, for the Christian, for those who are called, when we look at the bloodied Messiah, we don't see a stumbling block. When we look at the bloodied Messiah, what we see is the, the righteous Lamb of God who lived a life of active obedience for us, who is hanging on the tree for the forgiveness and the, the removal and the pardon of our sins. We see our only hope. When we see the cross, we don't see it as, as, uh, as foolishness. When we see the cross, we see the very wisdom of God at work. As he puts to death, death itself. The wisdom of God as, at work as he buries in the ground our sin forever and ever. And yes, fools rush into this message. Yes, fool, we, we, consider your own calling. Consider your own weaknesses. Considering your own lack of wisdom. Look what he says. Look at verse 20, uh, 28 and 29. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing to things that are. Friends, those of you who, uh, who feel, uh, you, you daily wake up suffering with this, uh, this idea that you are low and despised that you are nothing in the world. When you place yourself according to standards of what the world calls success, you don't measure up. And it weighs heavily on your soul. Let this be light to you. God chose what is low and despised in this world. God chose what is nothing in this world. Why? Verse 29, verse, 30, or verse 28 to, to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence 
of God. Yes, we are weak. We have weaknesses. We don't come from a noble birth line, the Corinthians would have said. We don't have wisdom according to the worldly standards, the Corinthians would have said. But what Paul is saying to them is this. You have to understand that God is, is, is using your weaknesses to make himself known. He's using your weaknesses so that his power may be seen. He's using your lack of wisdom so his wisdom may be seen as great. And by the way, God uses the weak to shame the strong. God uses the, the, the unwise He uses those who are uneducated to shame the wise. His power is made perfect in our weaknesses. The theologian and preacher John Stott preached in Australia years ago. And he told the story about when when, when he preached there, he lost his voice. And he was preaching at a pretty large conference. Now, um, you can only imagine if you were a public speaker and you were invited to speak in front of a lot of people or preach in front of a lot of people, you would sort of want to keep your voice. It would be a good thing to have. Well, he lost his voice. He prayed, asked people to pray for him. He could not regain his voice, okay? He goes up into the pulpit and he stands about an inch away from the microphone. And there he just simply croaks out the gospel with as much voice as he could come up with. He just simply croaks out the gospel. All the while, he is begging God. He's praying to God saying, please let your power be made known through my weakness. Let me read you John Stott as he, uh, as he reflects on that time in Australia. He says this, he says, well, I can honestly say that there was a far greater response that night than any other night. I've been back to Australia 10 times now. And on every occasion, somebody has come up to me and said, do you remember that night when you lost your voice? I was converted that night. The power of God is made known and seen in and through our weaknesses. It is not the eloquence of the preacher, but it is the, pre- it is the Christ that the preacher preaches that changes Lives. It is not the wisdom of a man that changes a heart, but it is the folly of the cross. It is not the strength of an argument, but the power of the gospel. Now, let me ask this question. Why would Paul start talking about church fights and then dive into these two doctrines? Or the other way to ask it, how do these two doctrines, the foolishness and weakness of man and the power and the strength of Christ, how do they come together and obliterate every church fight? This is how. Look at verse 29. So that no human being might boast. So that no human being might boast in God's presence. Verse 31, so it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There isn't a church fight out there that begins without someone boasting. There isn't a church fight out there that begins without a dangerous elevation of man, of man's, (coughs) excuse me, 
of man's thoughts, of man's fears, of man's desires, of man's cravings, of man's preferences. You've got a church fight. If we ever have a church fight, what is our remedy? The remedy is not to get a referee. The remedy is not to put a council together to try to hear both sides and figure it out. The remedy is not to bring in a professional and let's sit down and work through it. You got a church fight? Here is the remedy. To decrease man and to increase Christ. You have a church fight? The remedy is to elevate Christ into the center and into the place in which He should exist. The power of Christ, the authority of Christ, the message of Christ, the testimony of Christ, and to decrease the wisdom of man. May we as a church always and only elevate Christ in our midst. May we never be a church that elevates a man. May we never be a church that elevates the wisdom and the thinking of a man. May we never be a church that elevates our own preferences or our own desires of what should be or could be. But may we be a church that places Christ in the center and may we be a church that says He is our only boasting. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this message from Paul We thank You for the fact that You uh, have preserved it for us and given it to us. We count it as Your very Word to us. God, as we uh, have examined the church fight that took place in Corinth, and as we have examined Paul's remedy, the decrease of man and the elevation of Christ, may, may we be a church that puts that into practice. And may we decrease our desires and our Uh, feelings and our preferences and may we elevate Christ and keep him at the center and may our only boast be Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.